Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. So as I mentioned, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 today, we're going to make our way through the, the, the entire chapter here. We'll begin back at verse 1, even though we covered those first five verses last week. Shared with the first service, I, I wrestled a good bit with this passage this week, and I trust that, like me, you'll see, if you're not familiar with it already, that as you go through this passage, this is one of those where Paul has a bit of a way of... Uh, confusing you sometimes maybe you read through things and you find yourself going okay what exactly is he is he saying here because he's really just expounding in several different ways upon one common point and sometimes it is the case that when um when you have a passage like that sometimes at least in my own preparation the various points can become rather clear that's when you get an outline or a message that's very much structured in terms of here's point number one, point number two, point number three, etc. Whereas today, what I feel like the Lord wants us to do, and certainly a, a, a good portion of this chapter has to do with the wisdom of God. And we could, we could break out that, the characteristics of His wisdom, what it is that His wisdom does and accomplishes. But I think for us today, I think what the Lord has for us today is twofold. One... For anyone here or someone watching who may still be an unbeliever, you've yet to surrender your life to Christ. It's important that you understand that there is much of the Word of God and life in Christ that you simply do not understand. And you will not understand until His Spirit indwells you. That's when full understanding will come. And the second piece then, and it would be directly from that, is an encouragement to believers that what we have because of the indwelling of the Spirit, the understanding of the things of God, is truly supernatural. And to the believer here today who may have received Jesus and His Spirit may indwell you, but you are not maturing in Christ. You're not growing in your walk with the Lord. You are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, today is the day of surrender for you. That today you would say, I want the mind of Christ. I want Him to have control of my life. And for you to stop resisting the work of the Spirit in your life, but yielding to it. I was reading this week, author and pastor John Ortberg, in his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, he writes of the Bible and of the pursuit of knowledge, stating the goal is not for us to get through the Scriptures. The goal is to get the Scriptures through us. Some churches, he says, give people the idea that the only way to transformation is knowledge. There is an assumption that as people's knowledge of the Bible rises, the level of spiritual maturity rises with it. And that's not true. Through the first couple of chapters that we've, or even the first chapter that we've seen thus far, and really through the first four chapters of this book, Paul is going to continue to deal with the same things. 
He wants these young believers in Corinth to mature in their faith, to stop seeking after what the world sees as valuable or successful, to stop doing things as a believer the way that the world does it. Paul wants them to find their identity in Christ, to grow in Him and to live for Him. And this is what God wants for us as well. This is what I want for me and what I want for our fellowship. It's what every pastor wants, for people to grow in their knowledge of the Word, certainly, but so that the Word can do its work by the Spirit in their lives. It's not a simple knowledge of the Bible, but that the Word is changing your life because you're giving the Spirit the opportunity to work. That we would be different. Ortberg continues, Knowledge about the Bible is an indispensable good, but knowledge does not by itself lead to spiritual transformation. When Paul urged the Christians at Rome to be transformed by the renewing of their minds, He was thinking of far more than just the acquisition of information. The mind, Ortberg says, refers to a whole range of perceiving, understanding, valuing, and feeling that in turn determines the way that we live. The mind is to be transformed, renewed, all the more as our lives are surrendered to Him. This is sanctification. It's a believer maturing in the faith. One of the saddest things to see is a believer who is not growing. There's been very little change in their lives. There's no maturing. And often this is because they've not yielded to the Spirit and brought themselves under the authority of the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians, Paul has been establishing that the Corinthian believers' understanding of knowledge and wisdom and everything that they believed comes with that, such as power, identity, worth, all the stuff that our world tells us, if you achieve this or you do this or you do it this way, you're going to have this and achieve this and experience this. And what Paul wants the Corinthians to understand, what we need to understand is such a view is upside down. Paul shows us that God views these things very differently so they were looking at the thing at things the wrong way and certainly let it be said that it was not to suggest that there is no value in knowledge or that the proper application of knowledge which really is wisdom is not a good worth pursuing but to ask to what end and even more importantly whose wisdom that of man or of God's For the two, as we've already seen through chapter 1, are not the same. Ortberg continues in his book, saying, While knowledge is vital and should be prized, it also poses some dangers. It often demolishes humility. The term know-it-all is never used as a compliment. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, somebody called me that once. I thought I was was really proud of that. The Bible itself contains some warnings. We will see them in this, very, in, in this very letter. When Paul says to the Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Both human experience and the Bible teach that increased knowledge alone, even knowledge of the Scriptures, does not automatically produce wisdom and transformation. It does not automatically equate to maturity. So what does? 
If the Bible calls us to transformation, which it does, if the Bible calls us to renewal of the mind, to maturity, if we are to have the same mind as Christ, which we've been challenged to do, if we're to know the wisdom of God, how do we do it? Here in this chapter, Paul begins to give us this understanding. In this chapter, the word wisdom is used eight times in 16 verses, as is the word know. Knowledge and wisdom, we'll see, continue to be a major theme, but there is another word used with even greater frequency, and it serves to help answer this question. It's the word spirit. Thirteen times in just 16 verses, we see the word spirit or spiritual. And this serves to begin providing our understanding of exactly how we mature in Christ. We must yield to the Spirit. And so let's start from verse 1. Paul writes, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with the excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. The testimony of God being the gospel. He says, verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul here is looking back on what he had just said in chapter 1, that no flesh should glory in God's presence. Paul says there are not many that are wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Notice he didn't say not any, but many. And so the reality there that there's not many of us that fit in the camp of wise, mighty, or noble. Paul says, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. Paul, Paul came to glorify God. He had come to know who he was. Paul had a great understanding by this point of his own identity in Christ and what it is that he was called to do. He did not come to persuade. He came solely to represent Christ. And that's all that he desires to know and to be. A representative of Christ. An ambassador for Christ. Now we know of Paul from Philippians 3 that he had much he could boast in. Paul had many things that he could put and did on his resume at one point. But he says that he considered it all garbage, rubbish, worthless, depending on your translation, compared to knowing Christ. So Paul himself even, not just the things that Paul is saying, but his very being serves as a contrast to what the Corinthians were pursuing. And the same is true for us today. While his audience was looking to man's wisdom as a source of value, power, worth, and identity, Paul said, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Even in later years, Paul would reinforce this with them again. In the second letter to the church in Corinth, in chapter 12, verse 10, Paul recognizes that when he is weak, the Lord is strong. That God's strength is made perfect in weakness. These are things that for some of you, depending on how long you've been walking with the Lord or reading the Bible for, you're familiar with these verses, but these concepts, these principles are so contrary to who we are. 
Friends, we are so often ashamed of our perceived inabilities, ashamed of our weaknesses, but our shame often only stems from a desire for self-glorification. In our weaknesses, rather, if we look at it through the lens of the gospel, our weaknesses can glorify the power of God. We can boast in Him. Our lives can be used to point to the greatness of God. But this, of course, does not make sense to the world. And it requires a humility that agrees with God. It requires the mind of Christ. Paul continues, verse 4, "...in my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When Paul first came to Corinth, and so he's writing in this letter of when he came, when he arrived, and how he approached them. He says, I didn't come with persuasive words. I didn't come with human wisdom. Now, what we know in terms of his arrival at Corinth And where he was coming from, Acts gives us insight into this, Acts 17 and 18, we know that he was coming from Athens. This is, as I mentioned, recorded in Acts 17 specifically. And we see that while in Athens, Paul addressed the men of Athens, and specifically he addressed the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was sort of an aristocratic council. It was a big group of really important guys, at least from the view of the Athenians. And this is where, if you're familiar with the story, this is where Paul referenced an altar there in Athens with the inscription on it that said, To the unknown God. Why am I mentioning this? Well, in this account, and mind you, I recognize that this is debated. There's two different camps in terms of how they view this interaction that Paul had there in Athens. But it would seem to me, I fall into the camp that, that... Here in in Acts 17, in his interaction in Athens, it would seem that Paul sought in some ways to be creative and even clever in the way in which he presented the gospel to those that were there in Athens. That he appealed to them by using their intellect and aspects of their culture. And some people look at this and say, well... That's great apologetics. He was able to meet them right where they were on their level. The problem is, I think that this became somewhat of a clever performance. And what we see in Acts 17 is that the results aren't that good. Now, by no means would I seek to despise even the small things. A few people, even one person, turning to Christ is, of course, something that we would rejoice in. But what we see in Acts 17 is that many, most, mocked Paul. A few people listened. A couple of people said, hey, I'm, I'm on board with that. And then we read in Acts 17, 32 and 33, and when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And Paul departed from among them. As I've mentioned, there's two views here. One that say this was really a, a, a great effort on the part of Paul and others that say, I, I think he kind of screwed it up here. And, and I would be one of those. That's the interesting thing about Acts. It's not passing judgment by any means upon Paul. But in Acts, what we have is narrative. We have the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as it were. And the things that were happening and a, and a record of those things. Why does that matter? Well, for Paul here, 
as he leaves this interaction and he begins to make his way towards Corinth. I believe that Paul, along his way, determined to know nothing but Christ crucified. It's as if he said, I'm going to this next stop and I'm going to give people Jesus and let the Spirit do His work. No persuasion, no human wisdom, just the cross of Christ. And I think there's something that helps to support such a theory in that we have no record of a church in Athens, but we know that Paul then spent 18 months in Corinth, the Spirit moved and the church was established. Showing us that God's wisdom God's way of doing things is more successful. Paul certainly could have come to them seeking to persuade, but this would have been a performance. And Paul instead cites weakness, fear, much trembling, not persuasion or human wisdom. And and so for the Greeks, for this culture, this was all so counterintuitive as the Greeks were the forerunners of the art of public speaking, which included eloquence and persuasion. They greatly valued these things. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, is credited with describing the three domains that affect persuasion. Aristotle is the one who said, look, if you're going to give a convincing argument, here's the three things you've got to consider. The first is logos, persuasion through reasoning and logic. Two, pathos, persuasion by appealing to emotions. And three, ethos, persuasion through the fourth force of character or personality of the speaker or the writer. And so this was what they were accustomed to. You come in, you're going to give a great performance, you're going to be eloquent, you're going to have reason, you're going to have logic, and you're going to convince people. Now, I don't think that Paul's point is to discourage good communication. Truly, every speaker today, and certainly every pastor, should seek to do his best to communicate as effectively as possible for the glory of God and to the benefit of the hearers. But what Paul wanted more than anything was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He wanted the Spirit to move. Paul was dependent on this because he didn't want anyone to put their trust in his persuasion or performance or even him ultimately. Sadly, there have been many a false conversion. People who said that they gave their lives to Christ because of an emotional experience and a good speaker. But not a demonstration of the Spirit's power. When Paul uses the word demonstration, he's likening it to a legal case. It's as if he's saying, look, I'm going to put before you the evidence and you make a decision. Moses does similarly in Exodus 19.4. He gathers the people of Israel at Sinai and he says to them, you've seen with your own eyes everything the Lord did. Moses is saying, don't look to me. Don't put your faith and trust in me. Look what God has done. And look, Paul is not calling us to abandon wisdom. He's just calling us to abandon the wisdom of man and to embrace God's wisdom. He continues in verse 6 and 7, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you want to be mature? Most of us in here 
you know, Paul's dealing with maturity in Christ, but most of us should want to be mature generally, right? To, to grow. In chapter 3, though, Paul is going to express his desire for this church to move on to greater things because they're still stuck on foolish things. He's going to call them babes. It's as if Paul looks at this church in chapter 3 and he says, you're a bunch of babies. You're still drinking the bottle and you could be having a steak. You remember, you, you guys are familiar with babies and they start to get a, 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 an appetite for something better than what you've been giving them. And they're sitting there, I can remember my own kids sitting there in the high chair by the table and they're just you know, eating their stuff that I wouldn't eat. And they start to look, it doesn't take too long before they start looking over and going, I want that, right? I want that. Well, that's good. It's a, it's a good process. And for believers, we should be going, oh, oh I want that. Lord, I, Lord I, want, I want that. Lord, can I have some of this? I'm, I'm, you know, hey, thank you for your provision, but I want to move on to that. We should be desiring more in that way. Paul says, what's the deal? And so, he says, maturity comes when we surrender to the Spirit and begin to understand the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God are the things in His Word. It's the Gospel. The wisdom of God is that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The wisdom of God is the, is the way in which believers, spirit-filled believers, do things differently than the rest of the world. That is, you have the promise of eternal life, then you have the, per, the eternal perspective that comes along with that. So you're not going to be stressed out at everything that comes your way. You're going to experience the peace which surpasses understanding that guards your hearts and your minds. To be at peace when others around you are panicking and they say, what's the deal? And you say, I know that God's got this. He's in control. It's a different way of making decisions. It's self-sacrifice. The wisdom of God is the way in which we love people sacrificially or we forgive people and we don't harbor bitterness. We take poison and expect the other person to die. The wisdom of God is turning the other cheek. Paul says the rulers of this age, they don't know this wisdom. If they knew this wisdom, they wouldn't have crucified him. Now there's a couple of camps here in, in this, on this verse as well as to who are the rulers of this age. Now some would look at this and say, well, these are the, these are the earthly rulers. These are the people who were responsible for the, the torture and the crucifixion of, of Christ. And that certainly could be true. We know Jesus from the cross said, forgive them, they know not what they do. But then some look at this and they say, well, there's some people who were complicit in that process, and while they didn't know everything, they had a pretty good sense of who they were seeking to kill. And so people who, who fall in that camp think that maybe the rulers of this age that Paul is referring to is the principalities of this age being Satan and his demons. Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this earth. Knowing that if they knew, if they knew truly who Jesus was and what was going to happen when he died upon the cross, that they wouldn't have wanted anything like that to happen. Right? 
That Satan and his demons, that if they truly knew, they wouldn't have sought to see Jesus crucified. They, they thought they could kill him, silence him, and win, but death, we know, only made a way for life. Either way, whichever camp you may find yourself in, the principle remains the same. The wisdom of this age is coming to nothing. The wisdom of this age is coming to nothing, and so then it becomes incumbent upon us to ask the question, what am I trusting in? How do I live my life day to day? How do I base my decisions? What, what, what guides my decision making? When I react to situations, is it a spirit-filled, spirit-led reaction? Or is it from the flesh? Or is it based off of what others tell me I should do? When I make a decision regarding uh, major life decisions or the smallest decisions, am I looking to root those decisions in the Word of God to be led with the Spirit to spend time bathing such things in prayer and to considering what God wants me to do? Or am I basing it off of, well, the world says this makes sense? Because if it's the latter, well, that wisdom is going to come to nothing. If A general rule of thumb is that if you are doing something making the decision, reacting in a certain way, and you can only look to man's wisdom and the flesh to back it up and not the Word of God, let it be a warning that disaster is likely coming. So Paul says in verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, this particular verse might sound familiar to you. This verse is often quoted as a reference to heaven. A lot of times it's mentioned at a funeral as is just this way of getting us excited for the things that God has prepared that people don't fully understand. And there's an aspect of truth there in that certainly God's preparations include heaven for sure. But look at verse 10, Christian. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This thing that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, these are not things that are unknown to believers today. This is something that He has made known. Verse 11, For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. This would be one of those examples, if you're like me, where you start to go, wait, what? What exactly is Paul saying here? And what we need to understand is that Paul is not speaking explicitly of heaven here. He says these things have been revealed to those who love God and have His Spirit. That's the distinction. What he's doing here is contrasting the natural man and the spiritual man. He's saying the eyes and the ears of the unsaved person cannot comprehend or see the things that the believer can. This is the first point that I was alluding to in the beginning, in that if you have yet to surrender your life to Christ, there are things about God that you just don't understand. And perhaps even me saying that now resonates as you go, okay, yeah, because sometimes I'm confused, right? Now, there's a couple of really important truths that we glean from this as well. The first of which, church, Christian, we often do a pretty good job of judging and condemning a lost world. 
and we ought not do so. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. Why would we expect someone who is unsaved, who does not have the Spirit of God, to act like they do? And so we shouldn't be surprised when a lost world acts lost. And we certainly should not seek to condemn them, but to ask ourselves, well, what do they need? Jesus. And he says, I want to use you to show them the love that I have shown you, that my spirit would draw them under repentance. We need to remember that. But here's the other very exciting thing, Christian. What this means is that you have supernatural power working within you. I got an amen during first service. You're a superhero, in effect. I think we can just go ahead and claim it today. Some of you are going to start thinking of your name, right? Your outfit, whatever it may be. Seriously, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The Spirit of God has come to indwell you and given you the ability to know things that other people don't know and don't understand. That's powerful. That's a gift. That's grace. So then within this, Paul asks an interesting question. He says, For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Why do I say this is an interesting question? Well, let's say there's an individual that you see, say, standing on a street corner or in a store or whatever, and you've never met them. They don't look familiar. You haven't talked with them. You just see them standing there, and you know, I have never met this person. And they say nothing. They give you no answer. You don't know what their voice sounds like. You know nothing about them. Can you then know them? Can you really know them? The answer would be no. Now, oftentimes we might think we can know them or a little something about them, but that's really just arrogance. And that's just judgment. We don't know them. It's not until who they are is revealed that you can know that they begin to share aspects of who they are and how they think and how they function and what they're like and what they like and dislike and all of those different things. Only then can you begin to really know them. And this is an interesting question because as we seek then to understand the things of God and the wisdom of God, the same principle applies. And this is a big part of what we need to grasp from this passage here today and something that's incredibly exciting because is, is this understanding that no one can really understand God until he begins to know God. But as verse 16 will ask, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's known it? Now you might be here today saying, as a believer, well, I, I know God. I would say the same. I told you last week I know God. I told you that I talked to Him and that He talks back. Do you know Him because... You figured him out? Do you know him because you achieved some sort of intellectual ascent? You went on a journey and you know, self-realization and you achieved enlightenment and now you know God? Knowing is important. Jonathan Edwards writes, there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. So how do you really know him? Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. 
that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. We know God because He has made Himself known. Because He has given us His Spirit freely. His Spirit that indwells believers at salvation. The Holy Spirit that is with you, drawing you unto repentance, in you at salvation, sealing you for eternity, and continually with you and upon you to empower you and equip you to live the life that He's called you to do. It's through that Spirit that we understand, that we know. Are you surrendered to that Spirit? Paul writes, verse 13, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Why are we able to understand what we do? Because of His Holy Spirit inside of us. Not because of our efforts or our wisdom or our achievement, only because of Him. We only know God because He has made Himself known. The Spirit indwells. The Spirit searches the heart of man. All the things that Paul is speaking of here, it's the Spirit's work. It's the Spirit that teaches. It's the Spirit that matures. And so we should be asking ourselves, where am I at in these things? Do I have greater understanding of His ways, of how He's working? Am I maturing Verse 14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. To the natural man, the unbeliever, what you do, Christian, how you think, how you act, it doesn't make sense. But to the believer, here's the awesome thing is he says here that he himself is rightly judged by no one is that you know both now. You understand the natural things and the spiritual things. You have a wisdom that's revealed that was hidden and you can say, look, I've lived both. You can say, I know your view and, and now I know this one and I can tell you what God has done and how He has worked in my life. As we've quoted often, you can tell people, I was one way and now I am this way. And the thing that happened in between was Jesus. But The question becomes, if you know this, if you know the natural way in the spiritual way, why would you remain or seek to remain in the natural? Why would you pursue that which is natural, that which is of the flesh, when you have something available to you that is supernatural? Well, we know that the world has an incredible grip on us. It lures us. It tempts us. Satan plays the same old game. It hasn't changed. From the very beginning, he was about understanding what tempts a person, knowing that it's common to all men. Luring you in and saying, I can... I can make you something that you're not. I can can make you something different than what God has created you to be. Playing on your insecurities. Speaking lies of deceit and doubt into your life, causing you to chase after the things that you think will satisfy, 
things that you think will finally give you identity and value and worth, the things that you think will cause other people to finally approve. All the while keeping you from the very identity that God himself has created for you. And believer, you can understand this and know this. Verse 16, Paul says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And the answer, of course, would be, well, no one. Even though we try, don't we? Why do we know about the Lord? Because we've been born again. Born of the Spirit. Paul says, but we have the mind of Christ. Do you get that? He doesn't say, you might, you may, you will eventually, if you do enough stuff. He says, no, you have the mind of Christ. That's when I say, no way. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. That's grace. I'm going to assume that everybody sitting here right now, you're, you're, you're not foolish enough to raise your hand if I ask you, do any of you deserve the mind of Christ? And chances are, we being reasonably accountable people, knowing even though we think that nobody else knows and we've got it all hidden, if we evaluate and we think, man, what's my, what's my natural mind like? What's my natural heart like? We'd say, oh, Lord, you don't want me. But he says, no, I do. I want you. And I want to know you and I want you to know me and I want to give you my mind. And I'm going to give you my spirit. Isn't that incredible? Listen, if someone wants to know, and, this, and this, is the, this is really what I want us as we start to prepare here for communion, this is what I want us to really just sort of meditate upon. If someone wants to know the mind of a person, the reality is you need to enter that person's world. If you want to really know, you've got to go, you've got to go there. For this reason, marriage is such an incredible picture of Christ in the church. It's designed by Him. We see it in His Word, and, and it's intended in part to, to show us this. Case in point, husbands, have you ever been puzzled at the mind of your wife? <laughs> I love this part. The ladies are chuckling, and I got guys like, he's setting us up. Don't move. Don't say anything. <laughs> Just keep looking forward. Rubber back. Mm. It's okay to say yes. We, after all, have been created distinctly male and female. Differences, divine differences. And so, yes, it's okay if you've ever been puzzled. The problem is, when you maybe because of that determine, and I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to try and understand. I'm going to determine not to know. I'm going to ignore it. Or I'm going to expect her to just understand me. Adjust to me. If, if those are one of your defaults, you're likely having problems. What does Scripture call husbands to? 
to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And of course, he said, hey, bride, you, you work to figure out my mind, right? Adjust yourself to me. Figure me out. No, that's not what he did. What he calls the husband to is to enter in to her world, to die to self, to dwell with understanding as to the more precious vessel. Think that's a picture of something? Something greater? Paul said in Ephesians, as he was referencing marriage, and he's talking about marriage, and, and then he comes to this point where he says, well, this is a great mystery. And guys go, amen, right? But Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. Do you know that the Son of God, our bridegroom, because we could not ourselves enter the Godhead, because we couldn't adjust ourselves, He condescended and entered our world instead. He came and He dwelt among us with understanding as to the more precious vessel. He took on flesh, He took on weakness, and He died for us. You see, the world says, push beyond your limits. Reach enlightenment. Work towards this higher status. God says, you can't. But I'll come to you. I'll adjust to you. I'll make myself known to you. He says, you don't need to work to achieve or to know in order to be in relationship with me. He says, it's not the product of intellectual assent. It's about humility and surrender. The elements before us here today are representative of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who willingly adjusted Himself to us by condescending and coming and dwelling among us. And of our Lord Jesus, who came and dwelt among us, it wasn't just that He dwelt among us, but in obedience He lived a life that we could not live even unto a cross where He died for us. And this is the pattern that He calls us to. And to the world, this pattern doesn't make sense. To the world, the cross is foolishness. To the world, when you tell them of a God who is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, the Creator God of the universe, who comes and dies the world's response is, that's ridiculous. Because everything that the world tells us is that that is not how power comes. That's not how things are valued. That's not how identity is established. But that's the wisdom of God. And we're called as believers then to mature and to know that wisdom. And in order to know that, we must be surrendered to that this is the pattern He calls us to. He has given us His mind by the Spirit so that we can live this way. The question is, are we surrendered? Are we yield, yielded to His Spirit and His Word? Or are we fighting against it, resisting it? If you're an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit is working to draw you under repentance... Stop blaspheming the Spirit. 
Stop rejecting that work and surrender to it. Put aside what you know to be the wisdom of this world and embrace the pattern laid out in Scripture. Repent and believe on Him for salvation. If you know Jesus and the Spirit is seeking to do its work in your life to change you, and you know there's just some things where you go, man, the flesh is just far too evident in my life. But I know the Spirit's in me. Well, stop quenching that Spirit. Stop grieving that Spirit by doing the opposite of what it is that He's calling you to. Surrender to it. Today as we enter into this time of remembrance and consider what it is that He has done, as I did at the beginning, I would submit to you again, perhaps today is that day of surrender. Whether the unbeliever to salvation or the believer to say, Lord, I want your mind. I want more of you. To say, I don't want the ways of this world. I want to find my identity and my worth in the condescending, humble work of Jesus who died on the cross to give me hope say, Jesus, I want your mind. If that's you today, I would encourage you to take that to the Lord during our time of communion. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us now, and then our elders and ushers will release you by row to partake, and then this was the other thing I was going to mention. Then I have to go. I literally have to go catch a flight. So Pastor Jimmy's going to finish leading you in a time of communion. If you would, just agree with me and prepare in prayer. Father, we pause here now, Lord, and we thank you for our time together here this morning. We pray, Lord, that it's been pleasing to you. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. And, Lord, for your spirit that gives us understanding of your word. As believers, Lord, may we have a sense, Lord, of how fortunate, how blessed we are to gain understanding, to know your wisdom and your ways, to have your mind. But, Lord, we admit that sometimes we're not surrendered to that work. And so, Lord, here today I pray that all of us, myself included, just even afresh and anew today would say, Lord, I surrender. I want your mind. I want your ways. I want you, Lord, to rule and reign. Lord, whatever you want to do in this place here this morning in the remaining time that we have, may your spirit move and work in us individually as well as corporately, Lord, giving us unity around these things. Father, we love you so much and we praise you and thank you for how you care for us and how you bless us. Bless this body here, Lord, bless each of these as they follow after you today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.